You're listening to the Alan Carter Show on Global News Radio 640 Toronto. Welcome to Friday. Welcome to a beautiful day. The weekend upon us. Oh my goodness, what about that game? Oh, I can. Thank you. Oh, what a game when they were down 14 in the first. I didn't. I did not have good feelings. I did not have good feelings. And I couldn't sleep after. And I'm so, so thrilled for the city. And just what a win. And now we are a game away from going to the finals. And did you, if you watched the game last night, I'm, I'm wondering, how did you feel about seeing Drake at Jurassic Park? Dancing around, jumping around with his crew in his own little spot. I love that. He's got his own little spot there, and they just keep, every time the rap scores, like, it's cut to Drake. And Drake, there he is, dancing away. Here's what he said at the end of the game. Look around. Look around you. Look at this. We created this. This didn't exist before we were here. Look around at the square. I promise you right now, we did this. Doesn't matter what anybody says. They could say it's disrespectful. They could say it's this and that and that. Everybody's within, everybody's within the rules. Everybody's doing their thing. All we are is proud and passionate. We are like a college sports team. The Toronto Raptors are a college sports Sports team, I promise you. I love Toronto. I love this team, and we're going to the NBA Finals. Let's go! That is Drake last night post game, basically talking about all the criticism that's coming his way. There's been, you know, actually requests right to the NBA to say, can can Drizzy just tone it down a little bit, maybe on the sidelines? And there he was, uh, you know, outside Jurassic Park last night. And I know a lot of people have very strong opinions, have very strong opinions about this. And even people in Toronto, obviously big Raptors fans, even have opinions about it. Well, I'll tell you what, I'm Team Drake. I don't care. You don't like it? Well, I only have one thing to say. More tune for your head top. Watch how you speak on my name, you know? Watch how you speak on my name, you know? More tune for your head top, so watch how you speak on my name, you know? More tune for your head top. So watch how you speak on my name, you know? That's how I'll, That's all I have to say about that. That guy, I don't care if you like his music. I don't care if you like his style. That man has put Toronto on the map. He's put Toronto on his shoulders. He reps this town every chance he can get. And I don't care if you don't like it. Drake's my man. Uh, oh, hey, straight ahead, we're going to talk about sex. How about that for a transition, eh? You used to call me on my cell phone. But we have this new study from the University of Waterloo that says men and women have the exact same complaints in the boudoir. It is a revealing look under the sheets of the nation, and that is coming up. You know, the state may have no place in your bedroom, but this radio show is right there with you. It's okay, we won't make it awkward. And from sex to superbugs later in the program, a gripping tale of the scientific race to create a superbug eater before an antibiotic-resistant bacteria threatens us all and plunges the world into a dystopian deathscape. Speaking of dystopia, we have poll numbers for Doug Ford. Brand new. Exclusively for Global News. Just out. Let me give you the headlines. You heard some of this in the news. The liberals, who are leaderless, are currently leading in this poll with 32% of the decided popular vote. Who am I voting for? I don't know. It's not Doug Ford. I'll take it. I'll take it. The PCs have 30%. This is down 11 points from what they had in election time. 
the NDP 29%. That vote uh, number down 5% for rather five points from where it was at election. And the Green Party, this is interesting, 10% of the vote. That is doubling their actual support at election time last year. Here's the numbers in the GTA. The Liberals with a 40% lead. 40% is their number. 28% for the PCs. The NDP 26. Others only get 6%. Daryl Bricker is the CEO of Ipsos Public Affairs and National International Trends. He is going to be with us in just a couple of minutes. Let me just quickly go through some of the other issues you see in this poll. And that is, if you look at southwestern Ontario, there the PCs have a narrow lead with 33% over the NDP. So you got the PCs and the NDP in southwestern Ontario. In central Ontario, the Tories up 44% commanding lead. In eastern Ontario, the Liberals and the NDP essentially tied with the PCs in third. And in northern Ontario, which is always interesting, the NDP, 44%, a runaway support in the north for the NDP, with the Liberals at 27%, uh, and really the PCs not even there at all. Here is some other interesting uh, information from this poll. Only 3 in 10 approve of the performance of the government under the leadership of Premier Doug Ford. And isn't that interesting, considering what's been happening to him every time he shows up anywhere and the boo-birds come out? That is, one in three approving of the performance under his leadership. Now, a slim majority of Ontarians continue to support cuts to government spending in general in effort to move towards a balanced budget. That's 52% of people in this province say, yes, we need to cut spending to be able to get the deficit under control. And that is the key message that has been coming from the government. And that is why you saw Doug Ford out all week long, or just talking in interviews. You saw him, Travis Damrash talked to him. He was on Alex Pearson's show. And... I spoke with uh, Travis Danraj a little bit about that interview he did, and why is it, why was it that the Premier himself has put himself out there to try and amp up the PR war, especially with John Tory. Here's Travis Danraj. 100%, and you go back to his background uh, as a city councillor, you go back to his, his brother's brand, the family brand, it's being a man, the family of the people. Um, and so when those people are booing him, and you see, you know, he says that some of them are, you know, have their hands in the public trough, he still takes it personally, trust me. I've known him for a while. <laughs> Great to have you here. Thank you so Thanks, much. Alan. You can see more of that on Focus Ontario this weekend. Uh, Daryl Bricker now on the line. Hi, Daryl. Hey, how you doing? I'm doing well. Any surprises here? I mean, you know, parties and governments, you know, the the honeymoon does not, not last forever. Well, it, it depends on the government, right? I mean, so if uh, you're Justin Trudeau and you're a year in, uh, your numbers are actually better than they were at election time. But the agenda that he was executing was about more. Uh, he was spending more. He was, uh, you know, reducing taxes on uh, on the middle class. He was announcing a whole bunch of things that people regarded pretty positively. Uh, Doug Ford's in a situation where he's 
actually having to come back in and restrict government. So over the space of the last several months, we've seen a number of announcements about cutting back in various areas. And when you're in that type of a mode, uh, your numbers tend not to do that well. So that's, that's, I think, what they're experiencing right now. Well, and the conventional wisdom is always that you inflict pain in the first year of your mandate. I, I take some issue with the communication style of this government that seemed to try and you know, hide the fact that they were going to do all of this stuff instead of coming right out and say, hey, we're Buckley's, we're the medicine that tastes bad, but it's going to work. But what you found is that there's not that much support for the way they're going around doing this cuts. Well, the overall concept of balancing the budget, the public does support it. We have it at 52%. And, you know, that's more than actually voted for this government by uh, 10% more at least. So the general idea is a good one. But when you get into the specifics of what, about uh, the areas that they would have to be cutting back in, that's where the, the difficulty starts. And, the, and the, of course, what goes along with that is each of these areas have associated groups and interests that are going to be affected by whatever the government is going to be doing. And some of them are very well organized and very good at staging campaigns against what the government is, is, uh, is uh, um, uh, planning to do. So, for example, every, everything from city governments through to uh, unions, teachers' unions in particular. So they're taking on an awful lot of stuff. People generally don't like controversy. Uh, the idea that you're taking something away is sometimes difficult for people to accept. So what they do is the re- they react, and the reaction is what you're seeing in our numbers. How does this, I, and I'm I just wondering if if you're thinking back to the Harris government, there's been so much oh, talk yeah. about the similarities, and, and we've, we've heard these, you know, proclamations, oh, this is worse than Harris. Give me a sense of how Harris did, I, I don't know if you remember the polling, and or basically how did he do early on in his uh, tenure when he brought in the pain? The public controversy was far worse around Mike Harris. Uh, uh, if you remember back to the days of action, they were su- shutting down cities. Uh, you know, the, it was it was a really really difficult time. In fact, one of the most uh, probably the most difficult time I can remember in, in, in provincial history. That first eighteen months, two years of Mike Harris. But the difference with Mike Harris was when people voted him in. They already knew basically what he was going to do. So what you would hear uh, and you would see in the polling is that people would say, "Yeah, I really don't like this." But at least I knew it was coming, and we did elect him to do something like this. With Doug Ford, the the issue seems to be that uh, these things seem to be kind of random, uh, and there's that 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 activity of explaining to people during the course of an election campaign what you would do when you got into power wasn't really that strongly executed because they didn't have to do it in order to win the election campaigns. But where they suffer now is that they're trying to do two things at once. They're trying to make these changes, but they're also trying to give people a context for understanding them. And that's where the problems are. Daryl Bricker is with Ipsos and uh, has these new poll numbers out, uh, commissioned by Global News, and you can get them exclusively on globalnews.ca. Thanks very much for being on the program, Daryl. My pleasure. Thanks for having me on. And we have a sweet Friday treat for you. That's right. We're going to keep it sexy. And we're going to keep it scientific. The two of those things together, because there's nothing sexier than a brainy person. Am I right or am I right? You know what? Let me just say this. More tune for your head top. So watch how you speak on my name, you know? Speak on my name. More tune for your head top, so watch how you speak on my name, you know? 
My next guest is a Ph.D. student uh, and a Vanier Scholar at the Center for Mental Health and Research Department of Psychology and is part of a new study that says men and women are on the same wavelength when it comes to the problems between the sheets. This study for the University of Waterloo asked more than 100 heterosexual couples in long-term relationships about issues that are most likely to surface in the bedroom. And guess what it found is the number one common thing? Frequency. It's all about the frequency. Siobhan Sutherland joins me on the phone now. Hi, Siobhan. Hi there. Were you surprised by the fact that the main points here, the the top concerns for men and women, were exactly the same? We were quite surprised, actually. We gave men and women a list of 25 different issues that they could choose from. Um, So we expected to see a little bit more variation in what they reported. Um, But the message was really loud and clear that uh, there were three primary issues that they reported in identical order. And number one on your list of problems is the frequency. Let's give us number two. Sure. So number two was sexual initiation, which would be which partner is starting the sexual encounter. Can I get some Barry White here? So basically what you're saying is the preamble. It's the preamble is the difficulty here in number two. That's right. That's right. So it could be that one partner is the one who feels like they're always getting things started, or it could be that neither partner is initiating sex, which would lead to problem number one, which is um, lack of frequency. Right. And is it always lack? Is everybody's complaining about lack, or is there some complaints about, (laughs) hey, but maybe can I have a good night's sleep for once, please? Yeah, so a lot of the time what we see is a mismatch between partners, where it could be that one partner wants more sex and the other one wants less sex. And so it's just a a disagreement there. So we know that frequency in general as a topic is an issue for couples, but we don't yet know um, until we do future research if it's that, uh, you know, maybe one partner wants more and one wants less. So the average relationship length of the couples in your study is 10 and a half years. And I find this so interesting because... Do we do that many studies on couples who are together in heterosexual uh, relationships for that long? Um, Not a lot, actually. It's most common to use university samples of couples for... (laughs) (laughs) So university students? (laughs) (laughs) I'm sorry. Uh, that's okay. So we, we did consider this study unique in that we wanted to get a sample of couples who were in married relationships. It's much harder to do, uh, but we thought it was worth, worth the effort. <laughs> why, why, is it, why is it harder to do? Because university students are just more willing to talk about their sex lives? No, it's not that. It's because we we conduct our research in the university, and so um, the students are just really accessible. They can sometimes get credit for participating in. You get what? Oh, sorry. I'm sorry. You're gonna get a credit for it. This, I think, maybe the science previously has been tainted here a little bit, maybe skewed, perhaps, by the age. Sure, sure. So so um, we do want to know about dating relationships and how they develop, and that's definitely a benefit of having students because we get to see how relationships start off. But um, I think researchers are realizing, you know, we're needing to go to more of those long-term relationships if we want to see um, how marriages last and how they develop and what predicts divorce later on. I'm a huge fan of the uh, sex columnist and writer Dan Savage. Uh, Savage mm-hmm. Love, you may be familiar with it, and he writes quite often uh, 
and responds to people who write to him, say, about this mismatch of frequency. And, mm-hmm. and, and at one point, he wrote an article that said, I just, I'm not going to answer this anymore because it just, it's all I hear about. And right. I just wonder, why is it that we haven't identified that as something that we, that just in terms of our thinking about long-term relationships, that's where the problem is? Yeah, yeah, I've actually, most of of my work is dedicated to looking at what we call sexual desire discrepancies or desire differences between partners. And only now is the scientific community starting to recognize that this isn't just one partner's problem. This isn't just the low desire partner's problem. This is a partner, a problem for both partner, for both um, partners in the relationship. Um, And so my work and and other sex researchers have also um, have been trying to bring this much more to the forefront. Because previously the, the the way it's sort of treated was that the low sex, the low desire partner was, well, there's a problem there and, you know, you probably should, you know, take some sort of medication or you do right. yoga yeah. or something. So, so now you're saying that it's it's from both sides you look at it. That's right. So this this does a lot in um, not pathologizing one partner. So this isn't a problem with one person. It's um, it's a couple's issue. You could just as easily say the other partner has too high desire, um, but it's not really about you know where the problem lies in terms of which which person in the relationship. It's really about the compatibility and um, trying to help partners to negotiate around that issue. How do you define desire in a clinical term? Yeah, so, I mean, people um, outside of the research realm would just know it as, uh, as libido or sex drive. We refer to it as the psychological and biological motivation to initiate or engage in sex with another person. That is sexy. That is some sexy talk right there. <laughs> Does that come on some kind of scale? Is there a graph? Is there a pie chart? There's lots, lots of different ways that we measure sexual desire. Um, we have we have several scales, um, and so they can they ask different questions about um, how often do you fantasize about sex, how often do you want to have sex with your partner, um, and then we can also sometimes just ask partners um, the difference between how much sex do you want and how much sex are are you getting currently. And then, how, I mean, from your studies, I mean, how quickly do you get into therapy? I mean, are you dealing with in therapy at this point? Not at this point. So this, um, we hope that eventually this research will act as a starting point for understanding the types of interventions that sex therapists can use with their clients. Um, but right now we're really in the early stages of just identifying, like, what are these problems that, that couples are experiencing? And when we find out what the problem is, then further down the line we can say, okay, um, here, are, here are the areas that we're going to want to intervene in and start looking at what types of treatments might be available. Siobhan Sutherland is with the University of Waterloo, and this study is just fascinating. I thank you so much for being on the program, and I also thank you for just playing along and dealing with my, you know, (laughs) my general juvenile attitude. (laughs) Anytime. I really appreciate being on the show. Thank you. All right. Thanks so much, uh, Siobhan. That is so interesting as we take a look, and I'll just recap again what what they looked at. A hundred heterosexual couples. In long-term relationships, for an average of ten and a half years, that is a specific. That's a specific kind of couple, and I think you all know those couples. And what they say, number one thing, the frequency. Play me out, a little Barry. Can you get a little Barry on the way out? Midnight seems so nice to me. 
as you work your way into this weekend. Those of you out there in the LTRs, you know who I'm talking to. Was midnight. You know everything about your partner. Right on, baby. Too much. Right. Has the spice gone bland? Well, this weekend. Step it up and do something special. And tell him. Alan Carter said this was what you should be doing. Global News Radio, 640 Toronto. I want to get you a quick update on the situation on Toronto Island. And the islands have begun flooding as the water levels in Lake Ontario continue to rise. There has been a breach of the sandbags on the north shore of Wards Island. Here is the co-chair of Toronto Island Community Association, Tony Fairbrother, about yesterday's waves and what has been happening on the island. It was pretty well an emergency. People were panicking last night. The water's pouring over the wall. The waves were so strong they were pushing the bags away from us. We had about 100 volunteers working in different places. Camille Karamali is a global news reporter and is covering this story and has been monitoring what officials are saying. Joins me on the line. Hi, Camille. Hi, good afternoon, Alan. Are you still on the island, Camille? Uh, we actually had to grab one of the one of the ferries off the island, so we just uh, got to our vehicles uh, on the other side at the Jack Layton Ferry Terminal. But uh, I can tell you, you know, you rarely see uh, a temporary reprieve like this or good news like this. But uh, for the meantime, with the sun popping out and the weather cooperating, uh, you know, even since we were on the island this morning uh, for the Global News Morning Show, I was in ankle-deep water. That has started to dry up pretty quickly. So that's the good news. I'll give you the bad news now, though, Alan. Uh, they say uh, that uh, it is actually going to get much worse. Uh, it is going to beat 2017's flooding levels because the next week and a half is not going to look good for the island. So they, it's all hands on deck uh, as the week continues. Camille Karamali, who is covering the situation on the island. Thank you, Camille. I appreciate that update. And you can get the latest tonight on Global News beginning at 5.30 on television and, of course, simulcast on this radio station at 6 o'clock. My next guest is an epidemiologist. And in 2015, her husband and her were vacationing in Egypt when her husband came down with a stomach bug. What happened next was a case of a severe antibiotic-resistant bacteria almost claiming his life. She's written about it in a new book called The Perfect Predator. To talk about the race to try and beat antibiotic-resistant bacterias, Stephanie Strathy joins me on the phone. Hi, Stephanie. Hi there. It's a pleasure. Thank you so much for being here I think when we hear about antibiotic-resistant bacteria, we think they're sort of one-offs in hospitals, that kind of thing, but this is much more dangerous. Absolutely. It's estimated that by the year 2050, one person every three seconds is going to be dying from a superbug infection. And boy, did I find that out firsthand. And where is the science right now in terms of trying to come up with a bug to beat the bug? 
Well, what's interesting is that phages or bacteriophage are viruses that have naturally evolved to attack bacteria. They were discovered in 1917 by a French-Canadian, it turns out. And I was able to come up with the idea to use phages to cure my husband of his superbug infection by basically sending this you know, viral parasite after the bacteria, which gobbled it up. And since that case, which was now 2016, he was in the hospital a long time, it really has opened a new era of phage therapy. So phage are now being used not to treat superbug infections only, but to, there's scientists that are working on approaches to use phage as little nano vehicles to kind of groom the microbiome, to weed out nasty bacteria and leave the healthy, friendly bacteria in our guts. I've been reading a little bit about something called CRISPR, which is a gene editing tool. And and how does that work in terms of trying to design this bug to beat the bug? Well, CRISPRs are actually the bacteria's own defense system against phage. And they were discovered in the 1980s, and it wasn't until, you know, maybe about 10 years ago that it was, you know, determined that they could be actually used to kind of turn the bacteria's own defense system against itself. So CRISPRs now are used as um, tools to kind of, you know, these CRISPR-Cas tools to kind of, you know, chew up little bits of DNA that we don't want there. So, um, and they're, they're... the phage themselves are like little Pac-Men. So you can actually, you know, modify them using these genetic tools and, and you know, put in a payload where it can kind of chew up little bacteria that we don't want there. It's still very experimental, and it's going to be a ways away for, before this kind of technique, you know, hits mainstream. But it's an exciting new area for research. There has been so much talk about a return of a pandemic, especially since we've just passed the 100-year anniversary of the great flu pandemic that claimed so many lives in the world, and whether or not science is prepared for the eventuality of a worldwide pandemic. Do you see that that is in the offing, something is coming, and it's just whether or not we can react quickly enough to it? Right. Well, superbugs are already here. They're moving faster than we can track them. Uh, We don't have very good global surveillance systems, so we don't even know. For example, in Canada, it's not even known how many people die from a superbug infection each year. We need better data. We need better diagnostic tools, and we need new alternatives to antibiotics because they're becoming useless. And phage um, seems to be the best alternative that we've got out there. Stephanie Strathdee is an epidemiologist and an author. You can read her book, The Perfect Predator. It's available now. Stephanie, thanks so much for being with me. It's a pleasure. Thank you, Alan. We're going to talk about where you eat in this city. And I'm just looking here at Dine Safe Toronto has, for this week, five restaurants getting conditional passes. Do you ever check this before you go out? Yeah. Sylvanus Thompson is with Toronto Public Health and is a spokesperson for food safety. Welcome to the program. Thanks for having me. Would you do you just check this thing before you go out? If you're going to eat, would you say, well, I got to get on. I got to get on the, uh, the website and check out who's got what. I actually do. I actually do use the Dine Safe website, yes. 
Uh, and then, see, the thing is, is sometimes when you get these conditional passes, for example here, I'm looking at a conditional pass that you've just handed out this week, fail to maintain hand-washing stations, liquid soap, and paper towels. Should I think to myself, mm, I'm not going to go to that cafe? Right. Well, the, the whole idea behind having the DineSafe website and posting the inspection results is to help consumers to make informed decisions. So you would not know as a consumer that during the inspection, the public health inspector had identified that. So now that we have disclosed that, then you are in a position to decide whether or not you want to dine at that particular establishment. Some restaurants would complain that, you know, that's a bit nitpicky, and when they get a conditional like that, that people are going to stay away, even though that maybe that's not such a big infraction. Well, that actually is a big infraction because unwashing is one of the best means of preventing foodborne illness. So if I see an unwashing infraction, I definitely would have a concern about that. So that definitely is not nitpicking. Oh, all right. I, I, I take your point. I take your point on that one. As I just kind of go down, here's an Ethiopian restaurant on Parliament, failed to collect garbage, failed to protect against breeding of pests. Right there. That's I'm not going there, 100%. Uh, so... How often, I think the numbers are pretty good for anybody who gets a conditional pass that they are once again reinstated. How quickly does that happen? So once we issue a conditional pass, we have a commitment to the operator to do a reinspection within 24 to 48 hours, unless that operator says to us that they require more time to have the infractions corrected. So within 24 to 48 hours, we have a commitment to go back to do a reinspection. And how often, do you have percentages on how often then they do get a green lit pass from that point? Uh, it's about 98% of them will get a, a, a pass notice on the reinspection. Uh, on the first reinspection? On the first reinspection. All right. Sylvanus Thompson is a Toronto Public Health spokesperson on food safety. Thanks so much for joining us. You're most welcome. So that's the, the government idea on this. So the government, uh, you know, the civic government, the, your, your municipal government goes out and they say yes or no to these restaurants. And then they post it and then you can figure out whether or not you want to go. But the reality is, is that most of us don't choose where we eat that way. But we do check reviews. Many of us will not eat anywhere without first going online to check a review. But then ask yourself the question, when was the last time you actually posted a review yourself? Laura Hensley is with Global National Online. We love having her on the program. Welcome. Hey, thanks for having me. Do you, When you're choosing where you're going to go out to eat, do you check reviews? I do, almost religiously. And it's such a problem because sometimes I get so obsessed with reading reviews that it takes you away from actually looking at the menu itself. You're not even listening to what kind of food your body wants. You're just obsessed with reading the reviews. So and, and, uh, do you do that when you're actually at the table? You're just working over the reviews you're like, well, who, who says what about what? No, I do it before I go. So if it's a restaurant I've never been to before, I usually do some research. So I'll look online. What are people saying? I'll go on Instagram. I'll read the comments. I really want to know that if I'm going to spend money at a restaurant, that it's worth it. So I do take people's opinions pretty, you know, seriously. See, my partner is precisely like this. So whenever we choose a restaurant, I'm like, I oh, will go to this. Well, we'll go, go to this restaurant. I'll figure out when I get there. But no, she's got the Instagram like an hour before we were there. Like, apparently, you know, uh, uh, apparently the Asabuco is the thing to have here. And here's the, here's the picture of it on 
Instagram. Is that a positive thing, you think? You know what? It's funny you say this because I had a recent experience. I was in Palm Springs and I didn't know where to eat. And I was with my sister and we were on Instagram looking at all these people's food pictures. And we picked one restaurant because there were so many great Instagrams of it. We went there. The food was absolutely terrible. And I was so disappointed and mad at myself that I trusted these random people on the Internet's photographs to make a decision instead of actually, you know, going with my gut and what I wanted to eat. So I think sometimes the way you present food can speak volumes. And if you have a nice looking meal, you take a photo of it and you share it. It's a hip thing to do. It's not necessarily about the quality or the experience. So I would be very weary of just going on Instagram. And I think there's a lot of chefs out there who are thinking to themselves as they're preparing a plate, let's make this worth work on the gram. (laughs) Exactly. And I think when you have something that's beautiful and if you're, you know, involved on social media and you want to Instagram your meal, you want something that looks nice. But, you know, just because something looks nice and the restaurant has gone out of their way to make it presentable doesn't mean the quality is there. doesn't mean that the standard of the hand washing is there either, as you heard earlier. (laughs) There's lots of things to think about that go beyond an Instagram photo. Yeah, nobody ever posts on the gram a guy washing his hands. Nobody ever. No. Oh, this restaurant's amazing. (laughs) Look at at this guy, soaping it right up. Um, I want to move on to just not just Instagram, but the other, the Reddit posts and the, uh, you know, the other, the Yelp reviews and all the rest of that. And it just seems to be everywhere. Recently, we were taking a road trip and we're coming up to Belleville and my partner, you know, checks reviews on everything. She's like, somebody has reviewed the Wendy's. And (laughs) I think, who reviews the Wendy's? You know what? I, out of curiosity, looked at, I live near Gerard Square Mall and so there's a McDonald's there. Yeah. And if you read the McDonald's reviews at Gerard Square Mall, you can spend hours and have a good laugh. I think people really do review all different types of restaurants, whether it's fast food, whether it's, you know, a four or five star restaurant. And it's it's interesting to me because what can you really say about chain restaurants? You know, like you're kind exactly. of aware of what you're going to get. Sure. But, but well, this Wendy's is better than the other Wendy's yeah. down the street. I don't understand that. Now, do you actually ever write a review? You know, the only times I've been tempted to write a review is if I've had a really negative experience. But usually if I have a bad experience at the restaurant, I'll bring it up to the person that's serving me right away. And hopefully that'll make it, you know, we'll resolve it and I'll feel happy leaving. But I'm never actually going to write a review because I find if you're writing a review, you normally have to have your name attached to it. If you do a Google review, you have to have some level of verification. And I just don't feel like I want to put my name attached to anything on on an internet review right now. I don't know. I'll read them, but I've never actually left one. But see, isn't this interesting? Because, you know, you're obviously a person out there with some knowledge of food. You're a writer, so you could probably express yourself pretty well. And yet we... We just take at face value that those people who are reviewing are knowledgeable or, you know, don't have an axe to grind against that particular restaurant. Exactly. And the thing is, too, I think once you start to read reviews, you you get a sense of who the type of people are that write them, right? So it's usually people who have an incredible experience they want to share it or they have a really, really negative experience. There's very few reviewers who had like a mediocre thing uh, that they're going to share. Yeah. It, was, it was perfectly <laughs> acceptable. There was soap in the bathroom. Sure. Was- <laughs> it was lovely. It was three and a half stars. I wouldn't go back, but I don't hate it. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> so going forward, if you're going out this weekend, where do you suggest, what do you do uh, in terms of reviewing 
and and doing research about a restaurant before you go. Okay, well, I'm obsessed with checking out new restaurants. So okay. I always read new restaurants. So I love reading Toronto Life or Blog sure. Geo, Now Magazine, figuring out where are the hotspots. Then I've been trying to get better at looking at the menu. So once I figure out what kind of restaurant I'm in the mood for, I'll read the menu. And if the menu speaks to me, then I might do some research on the reviews. But it all kind of starts off with figuring out where I want to eat. But there's some classics that, you know, if you are fa- if you have a restaurant that you really, really love and you know the food's great, it's always a safe bet. You're going to have a good weekend if you go to a place that you can trust. Laura Hensley is a global national online journalist and always great to have you on the program. I'm so hungry. Thank you so much. <laughs> Thanks Appreciate for having that. me. More tune for your head top, so watch how you speak on my name, you know?